What's happening, Creation Grounds? I'm your host, Aaron Lloyd, and this is episode 40. Before I get into our next guest, I just want to encourage you to like, subscribe, share with people who you think will benefit from it, be inspired, be encouraged, be educated, be entertained. Our next guest is Khalil Kane, and you know him from movies like Juice, for Color Girls, you know him from the show Girlfriends, you know him from Love Jones, you know him from many, 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 many movies, TV shows, and he's heavily involved in theater as well. In this episode, we talk about a little bit of his onset experience with working with Pac on Juice and working um, in Girlfriends and Love Jones and talk a little bit about his career. We talk about his latest work, which is a play. Uh, called Lambs to Slaughter. We talk about the Negro Ensemble Company and the late, great Charles Weldon, who was the artistic director of the Negro Ensemble Company. We talk about, and he gives some advice for up-and-coming actors uh, as they navigate the industry and how we have to look out for another, and just gem after gem after gem. Just get knowledge. Enjoy this episode with Khalil King. Welcome to another episode of the Creation Grounds. I have Khalil Kane, a cultural legend, and then some cultural hits. What's up, Khalil? What's happening, man? How are you? I'm doing good, man. I'm happy to have you on. Excellent. It's good to see you. What would you describe your childhood as being like growing up in New York? Uh, man. So we're talking about like the late 70s, early 80s, you know? It was dangerous. <laughs> I come from a poor family. Um, I lived in a single parent home. Um, I think back then, as a community, we were better about policing ourselves and taking care of our kids. I mean, we did it sort of collectively. There were there were three of my friends, uh, three of my close friends that I knew for a fact their parents had privileges <laughs> as, far, yeah. as far as um, being able to discipline you know they had permission from my mother you know what I mean that if they saw me acting crazy that they could put me in my place and you knew that so as kids we always felt that like somebody was watching you know back then the streets was watching for real um, so we, we got into the trouble we were going to get in but at the same time we felt like we had a certain level of protection from, from our neighborhood, which was nice. And I grew up in the East Village um, here in Manhattan. So well, it was different back then, though. Yeah, it's um, like I feel like there was community watching out for the kids. It takes a village, you know, so there's definitely more. No doubt. But I mean, even now, I have, I mean, my mother had me when she was 17, so I have, you know, three moms, four moms, you know, women, women now that still claim, they're like, that's my son. That's just, it is what it is. Yeah. yeah. You're, and your father was part of the original Last Poets. So, yes, Adam Kane. And, and what, what lesson, growing up with somebody like that, what lesson has he taught you in your youth that resonates with you today, that you still carry with you? Either by his example or by words that he's spoken to you? Um, time ain't nothing but a river. Time ain't nothing. Time ain't nothing but a river. Last poets were Guyland Kane, Felipe Luciano, and David Nelson. Um, 
Felipe is still very present in my life. I've known Felipe since I was five, six years old. Um, they, were, they were young men back then. And, and their voices held passion and power. Um, they told stories that they were making up on the fly. It was, it was brilliant stuff. But you're talking about a, a, a smaller audience compared to what we, how we can impact and approach sort of a larger range of people now through social media. So with that being said, the fact that, that people still speak their name or, or talk about them as an entity means that, that what they created uh, was important to the culture. Absolutely. And uh, I didn't know this, but in preparing for this, I, I heard that you have some skills in the rink. So uh, tell me about, like, back in the day at the Roxy. Like, oh, I thought you said in the ring, like... <laughs> oh, boxing, no. <laughs> I'm, I'm sure you got some hands, too, but... <laughs> you, you were talking about the skating rink. Yeah, yeah. Um, quiet is kept. That's how I got into show business. Really?
many turning points for me. Um, I learned a lot back then. So, and, and strangely enough, I have no tape of that time. It's, it's just sort of legend, passing off the mouth. People that saw me do my thing back then, it's all the way to attest to, to what I was doing, you know. Um, but one thing led to another. It's that thing that kind of get bit by the bug. You know, once, once you get one standing ovation, it's, right. <laughs> <laughs> it's over. Yeah, so. I mean, like in Brazil, uh, when we were in Belo I think there were 3,000 people there. Wow. Yeah, and it was like two levels. So it felt, and I mean, as a kid, and in another country, I never experienced anything like that. And I blew their mind. I remember I skated to fucking for, fucking for Jamaica um, and, and tore, that, tore it down. They didn't know what happened. It was great. But for me, as far as building confidence and getting, getting an understanding of like who I am and what I'm capable of, I think that that went a far, far away in helping to propel me into what was next for me. Wow. And uh, you're a great artist. You've been in some cultural hits. What would you say is, is the last the last movie that has moved you or show, TV show that's moved you personally as an artist? Yeah. Uh, three episodes have, have dropped, and um, I think it's really fly. Have, have you seen P Valley yet? No, I saw the trailer. I know it's um by a playwright. In, uh, Tory Hall. Yeah, yes. Tory Hall, yeah. Now, I don't know, maybe three years ago, two, three years ago, I was uh, leaving an audition. I was out by Lincoln Center. I popped into this restaurant to, to get a bite to eat afterwards and look at some other stuff. And I look up and Katori Hall is sitting across the dining room and she's got her laptop out and she's just eating. Um, earlier that year, I had worked with her on a short film that she did. Um, Arthur Butler. About a, about a rodeo cowboy. And so I got up and just sat down at her table. And she looked up. She didn't. She was so engrossed in, in what she was doing. She was just like some black man just sat down. She was like, "Yeah." She's like, "Oh, what's up? Oh, hey, hey, hey!" So I'm telling her, like, "What you working on?" She was like, "This you know, TV deal. I'm trying to get done." And she was talking about Pussy Valley. So for a playwright, a sister, to be able to take something that she put on stage years ago, conceptually turn it into a TV show, and then execute it with the networks and be able to get it produced is a huge thing. People see this stuff all the time, and they don't understand how many groups are involved to get it done. To get a TV set. Yeah. So, I was really curious to see what the end product was going to um, not only did she create it and get it there, but she's the showrunner. She's a big deal. I think she, I mean, she expanded her vision. She she kept her control over the project artistically, which is amazing. Katori, if you don't know her, is an amazing being. Um, the show 
it's fire, man. Like, just the look of it, the language of it. And I'm not a stripper club dude. Like, that's not my thing. Mm-hmm. This takes place at a strip club. But it's about people. Like, the wide range of, of people that are, are in our universe. Um, she's empowered these women that are without a doubt marginalized and demonized in our society. And I think that's something that's, that's always interesting to me is, is to take that demon and show the angel. And I think Katori has done this in a very intriguing way. And also, music is fire. It looks amazing. The language is, is, is authentic and imagined. She really stretches the boundaries of and forces people that that are not familiar with this culture to really listen. Hmm. Because if they don't, they're not going to understand what the hell they're saying. And this is something that has gone back and forth from culture to culture at infinite. You know, um, I need to understand what what you're saying. Uh, And these people speak English. It's dope, man. I really dig it. It looks, it looks great. Um, and there's some really, really interesting characters. Um, I think she's empowered these special women in a way that I have not seen yet on television. It's I, different. I gotta check it out. Yeah. Let's uh, let's talk juice, man. Um, I, I, what are your top three memories from our set? From being on set. Oh, wow. My top three memories from being on set. I brought I I brought a lady friend of mine up to the set to kind of show off because I'm a movie star now. Uh-huh. This, this is my first this is my first real joke. You know. So I'm like, yo, let me look this for all it's worth, so I'll bring it. Bring this, this young lady up to the set. I'm not even working that day. I'm just bringing her up to kind of show her around and let us see what we're doing. Mm-hmm. Um, as we start to get to the top of this hill, pop this kid stretch, and another kid was stomping this other dude out. Damn. <laughs> like straight up. The kid uh, was from the neighborhood, pop had kind of befriended him, and he stole some jewelry out of, out of pop's trailer. Damn. So he, he, had to, he had to catch that beat down. Um, but she thought it was like part of the movie. You know, she thought they were filming. So I was like, nah, I'm here. <laughs> 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 come, come this way. Um, that was, that was uh, crazy. Um, I think uh, at lunch, watching from Naughty by Nature and Pop Exchange rhyme books, which was something that they did often during lunch. They were both always writing. I mean, Naughty by Nature hadn't dropped an album yet at that point. As a matter of fact, I heard um, a demo that Tretch passed just to kind of get a, a gauge of, of what I thought. And I was like, yo, y'all, y'all about to blow up. This song is going to be Ready? Are you kidding? It's like for real. It's like, yo, this is out. This is, it was, you know, um, and it was, it was a huge hit. Um, but they were, 
notes and then critique each other's rhymes. And, and That's dope. I, lo- I, I love the trust and bond that that builds artistically. Um, I see too many people that are afraid to share their work out of some funky sense of ego. Um, they, they were like brothers. They trusted each other and, and, and still sharpened steel. You know what I mean? So hearing them kind of um, critique each other's rounds was, was, was a lot of fun. Um, and it, was, it, it warmed my heart only because I was older than them. To see like younger cats really behaving in an elevated manner made me feel good. It gave me optimism. It made me think like we're moving in the right direction. So that was fly. That was fly. Um, and and then and then just working with Ernest Dickerson. I think for that to be my first film. We were spoiled. Ernest was very skilled, and I mean, as far as his eye from being like cinematographer for all of those iconic films, but he's just an amazing human being. He's really um, a sensitive person, a thoughtful person, a considerate person. So I think all of us were spoiled, you know, having that outside of Jermaine Hopkins. This was all our first big film. Ernest took really good care of us. Um, so that set sort of a precedent for moving forward. You know, you know, I really wasn't putting up with, with much less than that moving forward. Um, but the, I think it was helpful. And, and Ernest Dickerson is still a friend today just because he's, he's beautiful like that. Yeah. That's dope, man. I mean, Juice has stood the test of time. It's been around. Um, I was born. I, I, it came out in the '90s, so I'm, I was very young, but still saw it. And people are still talking about that movie, even like yeah, the new generation. Still, still resonates, which is amazing. Why do you think it stood the test of time like that? Besides the chemistry that you and the castmates had, and Ernest's eye, why do you think it's kind of stood the test of time? Um, just. I feel like it was so honest in its messaging. There was nothing sort of far-fetched about it to the point where you tune out. You know what I mean? Um, there's there's uh, this indie film that I just got hired to do a rewrite, a rewrite on. So I did that and sent it back in. And that was part of what I was dealing with, with them, um, with, their, with their team. I was like, yo, this stuff needs to be honest, like real. Like, I don't know that this would actually happen or it would happen this way. Whatever you're presenting, present it in a way that, that an audience can buy in with no reservation. Um, Juice was about was about kids. It wasn't about gangsters. It wasn't about hoodlums or, or, or drug dealers or anything. Like, these were just kids that hung out together. They were, they were little kids. Mm-hmm. I think people respond to that, responded to that because they can put themselves in, in, in their shoes of those characters. Do they, you know or you yourself are one of those four guys? Facts. You know, every crew got those got those four guys. You know, um, so people immediately were able to kind of put themselves 
in that world and, and really ride with us in that story. Um, we had no idea what we were doing. Yeah, I heard you um, tell this story once of uh, how Pac said he was going to be a millionaire and you didn't believe him. Y'all was like, ah, get out of here. It wasn't um, that I didn't believe him. I just felt like he was talking shit. Oh, got you. And that's kind of far-fetched. Yeah. It like, is. Bruh, shut the fuck up. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, seriously, it was, he was always talking shit. Like, back then, that's what it felt like. Was like youngster, calm down, stop running your fucking mouth. You always talk shit. Now, that was prophecy. Yeah, that's facts, man. Uh, so tell me about the scene with. Uh, so the things kind of take a turn during this scene where Raheem and Pac get into a, and Bishop get into a, a scuffle. Tell me about that particular scene and and what you guys did to prepare for that and the energy on set for that scene. Yeah. I know what that is. I'm sure you know what that is. Yeah. Now go do it. Um, don't bullshit around. Don't play. Um, Pac and myself, I mean, we're both very physical people. Um, we had no problems getting getting into it. I think because of our friendship, um, because of how much fun we were having on on set of that film, we were having a really good time on time. Um, I feel like. Uh, I feel like the first couple of takes, I mean, were, I don't know, you know, Pop wasn't really coming at me as direct as it needed to be. So I think it was maybe the third or fourth take while we were scuffling. I kind of spun him around and dropped him into the garbage cans. Oh, kind of hard. After that, it was like, <laughs> all right, cool, it's on now. I remember saying, I can't wait to bust um, And then the next couple of takes were five. Uh, for me, that was the last shot of the day when we finished the sun was coming up. Because I had been laying in a pool of blood on the ground, like I had gravel on my face and blood was everywhere. And you know, I'm tired, wrapped. I got up and I walked into the trailer and the first thing I saw was myself in the mirror. Over my chest, blood all over my face. Um, I don't know. I, I've said time and time again like, that I don't watch that film often. I really don't. I can tell you the last time I saw it. Um, and a lot of times I've mentioned that I, I don't like to watch it because, you know, I see pop. Oh, yeah. So obviously, 
Pac icon, how has working with him like impacted your your like career and just your life? I, like, I don't think I don't think I have one without him. Um, I probably wouldn't have got the role in that film without Pac. I mean, he was so um, intense in the audition process that I felt like when we were in the room together, like if I don't pick up my my level to his or better, I'm not gonna get a job. This kid, you know, you're watching. They were bringing us all in the room, and it was really an intense um, audition process. And, and I realized quickly, like, if I want, if I want one of these roles, I'm gonna have to be that kid right there. I'm gonna have to be at that level of better, or I'm not. I'm not gonna um, so he was very helpful in that regard. Um, he's been sort of a north star. Of what's possible, good and bad, mm-hmm. as far as as creativity and work ethic, but also in the in regards of of the dangers and and imminent death. Mm-hmm. Um, when it's that close to you, uh, the facts of of how easy it is for, for a black man to lose his life. Uh, you can't, you just can't look away from it. Yeah. You know what I mean? And, and gratefully, there are many people that I know personally that don't have that close connection to that reality. Right. You know, and there's just as many, if not more, that I know personally that do have a personal connection to that reality. Uh, be a black man in America. Tell the truth publicly. And unapologetically, too. Yeah, man. What, what do you think he would be doing today if he was not just in his career, but in his in his life? If he was still with us, what do you what do you feel like he would be doing today? I have no idea. I mean, yeah. Pop was very unpredictable, and he's dead. So <laughs> when I think about what he would be doing today, it does nothing but just sort of make me sad. Gotcha. So I, I, I try not to, to touch that too much either. Um, Pac loved, loved humanity, and he loved black people. Um, so even back then, he was very socially aware, politically aware. Um, he had a conscience about what was right and wrong and fair. Um, and Pac was very open. I loved, I loved how he was always ready to fight. Um, <laughs> I mean, you laugh, but that's problematic. I mean, we live in a culture now where everybody's swimming, yeah. talking shit online, and, and, and talking real stupid and crazy in the comments. Yeah. It's like no thought that, like, I might see you in the street, bro. You know, and then we gotta deal with, the, with these hands, like, People are not prepared to fight. Like, I understand what it is you want. What are you willing to do to, to get that? Right. And a lot of people are willing to talk, talk it out. Not a lot of people are, are ready to go to the mat. You know, and that is what it is. Cop was always ready. <laughs> I mean, you want to go hang, you want to go bullets, you want to do. Um, there's, there's definitive history to attest to that. Yeah. 
Let's uh, let's shift gears a little bit. Talk about your experience on Girlfriends and Love Jones. Um, also very important to the culture. What, what does it feel like for you to know that you've worked on these very significant um, projects uh, and, and to forever be cemented in, in that conversation for you? What, what is that like? That's not, that's not planned. Yeah. That's not I mean, um, I got hired on Love Jones off of an audition tape. I was one of the last guys in. Um, I think it might have been one of those things where uh, somebody mentioned my name you know, at the right time. I probably wasn't at the forefront of temperatures list of, of cats because I was curious when I got the script I was like how come I haven't seen this how come my age haven't been talking about this so all these other roles I was like what about this role right? mm-hmm. <laughs> they're like oh those are all cast already um alright uh, the script was dope I was excited to get cast um but you don't know what what it's gonna be Love Jones is still one of my favorite films. It's a it's a dope film. It's a classic. I mean, when you think about it, like, what's wrong with me alone? Nothing. <laughs> Nothing. Nothing. Not a different thing. That's why she's still working. That's yeah. why she's still amazing and beautiful and talented and, and relevant. Because what's wrong with her? Not a damn thing. Facts. Um, what's wrong with Lorenz Tate? Not a damn thing. So I love the fact that that the folks from my my era mm-hmm. are still killing it. You know, there's no dumb shit. There's no controversy of of silliness. You know, you don't see me online with her booty out. I mean, we're talking about you know, working with her. I was I was happy how much care she took with her work and how much it mattered to her. Ted made a point to get us together before we went to Chicago. Mm-hmm. So we actually lived close to each other in Los Angeles. And um, so I went by the house and hung out with her and her mom and chilled with them, which was, when Ted told me that, I was like, damn. <laughs> he was like, here's his number. I was like, life is getting better. Um, I go over there. All right, so... How fine do you think Neil's mom is? Fine, fine. Bright. Ah, she gotta be. Crazy. I was like, ladies, what do you have for dinner? Amazing. Two, two great, spiritual, lovely women. Um, I mean, I love being able to look back now and see, you know, these people doing their thing still. And then, and then there's Lisa Nicole. Mm-hmm. Yep. Do you know what I'm talking about, Lisa Nicole Carson? Yep. Yeah. Um, she's. I worked with her on Love Jones. I worked with her on on a pilot called Divas. That was dope. I, I wish we could have got a chance to do that. Um, it was a really really cool project. Uh, she's a perfect example of somebody who's brilliant. She's. A, wonderful actor. She's so dope. But this business will cast you aside yeah. so quickly. 
more so us than anybody else. I mean, shit, when you're looking at COVID-19, how we are impacted more so than everybody else. Why? Because of socioeconomics. You know, there are so many poor people without resources. Uh, no, I don't have insurance. No, I don't have money to buy medicine. No, I don't have money to eat the right food to keep my immune system up to par. No, I don't have, you know, even the, the knowledge of what the right foods to eat. We don't have organic in our neighborhood. We don't have, like, just stuff. But, even in the industry, somebody like Robert Downey Jr., who had a serious problem mm-hmm. with drug addiction, they bent over backwards to make sure he kept a career and that he got the treatment he needed. You haven't heard anything from Lisa. Yeah. I mean, they, we are very disposable. Um, and, and young folks of color that are getting into this business need to understand that those are the facts. Like, you are on your own. You need to really form bonds with your people, your fan base, and your people because that that is what's going to hold you down over the long haul. Um, the business structure of, of Hollywood, of the entertainment industry per se, you're just a commodity. So, I mean, don't take it personal, but that's really what it is. Yeah, you, you might have just answered this with your, your prior answer, but what for advice for up-and-coming actors, um, either going to New York, L.A., Atlanta, what do you have, what, what pieces of advice do you have for uh, people who may be listening um, in terms of navigating their career? <laughs> Have something to say. Love that purpose. I mean, yeah. have something to say. Have something to offer to the culture. Have something um, in your back pocket that is of value to not just you, but to those that you love and care about. Um, because that will give you the strength to keep going. Um, so many people quit because it's, it's a hard road. It's a very difficult road. But if you really feel like you have something to share with the culture, you have something to share with your people, and this is and this is the, the stage, this is the podium, you're gonna keep going until you get to you get that off your chest. You know? Um, I mean it's been um, I've been in the business almost thirty years now. So I think this is year twenty eight, twenty nine, something like that. Mm-hmm. And and if not for me wanting to stay, needing to stay, deciding I'm, I could have quit 15 years ago. Yeah. So Charles Weldon, the, the late um, late Charles Weldon, who was the artistic director for Negro Ensemble Company, what was his impact on you? Um, Charles Weldon validated a lot of what I thought. So there are thoughts that go through our head about like philosophy and, and action and, and health and whatever, uh, how we walk in the world. Um, but sometimes as young men, we're unsure like if that's the right way to go. <laughs> like, am I crazy or, or am I right? Um, that was something that I saw Pac go through a lot. You know, he knew he was right. He knew he was like, I know I'm right. But then I got... 50 people telling me I'm crazy. 50 people telling me I'm wrong. When I know in my heart that I'm right. How do you know? It's wonderful when you have 
someone that's older that you can look at as a mentor that you know has been already been where you want to go mm-hmm. validate your thought process now what I got from Charles is that it's it's not chess it's checkers what like might? stop with all the tri- trigonometry through addition and subtraction uh, and we got to it because we were working on a play called The Great Mac Daddy and I was in a discussion with the director about a scene and I was like very cavalier about my choices and how simple they were mm-hmm. and where this right direction was going seemed one off base from what the playwright intended and just doing the most you know what I mean like Simplify your choices so that you can make a choice today, not tomorrow, not an hour from now, not a week from now. I mean, I've been able to sort of take out as much um as I can in my life. That's been a conscious effort. I don't, I don't like being asked a question or asking somebody a question in the first few years. Um, in Soldiers yeah. Play that he, that he just yeah. did and, and uh, I mean Charles was a gangster dude. he was I, I love <laughs> just his honesty uh, his smile he cursed like a sailor like like a motherfucker I don't need that. My ego doesn't need that. 
I always come to work. I'm humble. I, I love, you know, I love other artists. Um, Charles didn't care about me. Charles wanted me to be a king. Charles wanted me to be a star. Charles wanted me to tap into that. Tap into that shit. Be that dude. No, don't be humble. <laughs> Charles, he was like, nah, man, let's start. Let's go. Come on. You know, um, I feel like his level of commitment to, to this struggle of black art was real. Real. Absolutely. In my opinion, he gave his life to that. Um, he never stopped. You know, in the, in the face of, of failure and, and, and Bullshit, like he just kept pushing, you know, knowing that it wasn't going to be what he wanted it to be. So what? Yeah, that's. I think that's a huge lesson for me. Even just saying that out of my mouth, Charles, because um, I, I do the same thing. I, there's half the stuff I'm, you know, half the stuff I've been involved with in the last five years. Um, I knew it wasn't gonna. A huge hit or some giant no, but I did it anyway. It moved the needle for those around me. It made me a vessel of change and, and use for those around me that that are aspiring to what I already had. Um, the generosity needs to be built and, and, and between us. Yeah. As, as a people, for us to move to where we want to go, like that has to be a component that is unquestionable, you know. And that was something that I had with Charles. Like I, I trusted him. Like that. Like, I knew he had my best at heart. You know, he wanted something good for me, and he didn't want anything but that from me. Made me stand on my word. I appreciate him for that. He was a real, he was a real one. Uh, he, he told me that he saw himself in me, um, and that was a huge compliment that I will never forget. That's beautiful. Yeah. Tell me about your your new play, uh, Lambs of Slaughter. Where did you get the idea? Tell me about that day where you got the idea to write that. Shot in the back in front of the way. Yeah. And it was one of his homeboys. 
Williams get shot. Now I find this out. I know this kid that shot my cousin. Yeah. I go to 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 production and let them know that I would like to go home for the funeral. Um, um, like this was my doom. Uh, my first cousin. So he was the oldest child of my aunt Joan, and I'm the oldest child of my mom June. Mm-hmm. So we were just like, you know, we were the oldest. Um, they told me I couldn't go home. That the schedule didn't allow. Now Penny Marshall got rehearsal. Penny's from the Bronx. Mm-hmm. Penny was like, look, you're a grown man. You do what you want. I can't stop you from getting on a plane and going to New York. But I also can't give you permission to leave because our schedule is too tight and I can't let you leave right now. Right. So you should think you want to do. Now, this is a studio picture, Sony, Disney, the whole shot. If I just up and bounce, like, I'm killing myself. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So I had to make a call as far as what's really important to me. And I chose my career and I didn't go home for the few. Now, there's a certain level of guilt that I held on to probably still to this day for not being there. But I didn't go, and then I sent for my younger brother and brought him to L.A. because I knew what he was about to So I brought him to L.A. to keep him from getting in any trouble. Um, but it's something that sat on my spirit for a long time. Man. Uh, I, needed to, I needed to exercise it somehow. So I come to New York, I move back home right after, I think it was like two years after we shot for Colored Girls. I moved back to New York and I wanted to do something for the city. So I, it was the 20 year anniversary of Juice. I threw a big party uptown in Harlem. I got two of the theaters, um, at the Magic Johnson Theater up there and did uh, screens of the film for free um, through a party. I also wanted to raise some money. So I raised some money for a group called Harlem Mothers Safe. And they counsel mothers after they've lost a child to gun violence. I mean, they'll counsel you as long as, as you want to come. Um, they'll go to the precinct with you. They'll be there at the hospital with you. Like, they, they, they are on the ground, boots on the ground. And uh, so I was able to get from a check cut that night, but... Researching them, I'm waiting to hang out with them. I mean, to this day, they've got a, a big picture of me at the office, which is love. Um, and I know, you know the mothers and hearing their stories of, of loss and mourning prompted me along with my own story of loss and mourning prompted me to write Lance to Slaughter. Mm. Um, and it was, it's very selfish. Like, I, there's so much that I see black people walking around with like weight carrying mm. darkness that they really can can let go. Like they don't have to carry that around every day. But how do you let that go? How do you put that down? Um, for each person that's gonna be different. And if you don't decide consciously that I'm gonna put this down, you're not gonna figure out a way to put it down. And for me it has been right. Because after I completed Lambs to Slaughter, I mean, I have more clarity now on that situation and how I feel about it. And I can, I can, 
break from mourning the loss of that young man on occasion. He's somebody that I loved, so yeah, you know, blood. Um, but it, it, I mean, his mother's name is Joe in the play and in real life. Yeah, I mean, people that are going to read the play aren't going to know that, but this is facts. What were the most challenging moments in writing that, and what were the most joyous? If there were any joys. So challenging is, is telling, telling the truth. Mm. Um, as a writer and as a creative person with, with a sort of evolved sense of imagination, mm-hmm. having done what I've done for so long, um, I can come up with sort of this tale of woe, which I did. It was an, an incarnation of that play where Emmett was actually a ghost and you didn't realize he was a ghost until the end of the first act. I actually thought, I actually got that, that sense a little bit. But, yeah. yeah. I mean, and to a certain extent, all of us are. Mm-hmm. Because, especially young black males, uh, we have shouldn't have, but most of us have loved ones, patriots, comrades that have, that we've lost not, and not died, murdered. Yeah, it's a big difference. Um, it's a big difference in that weight that you carry around. Um, that, that, that sort of level of darkness that you might have in your eyes sometimes, and that's why you know that woman might clutch her purse mm-hmm. in the elevator when you get on. Don't mean any harm to her, but that that murder, that death, is right there on your face, yeah. and carrying it around every day. You know, so I enjoyed. It was really a, a wonderful device, and it was very um, theatrical. The whole ghost, but <laughs> it wasn't the truth. Yeah, and people dug it. Um, I remember when I did the rewrite. Now I did some work. I went to Pittsburgh and did a production of Pipeline. So we're digging deep into this Dominique Moore so work. I'm looking at her play. I'm like, I need to go home and <laughs> do some work on my joint. And I was like, oh, no. I was like, man. You know, um, there's a richness and, the truth. and a density to, to correct work. Um, and as soon as I was done with that, I, I was supposed to go to D.C. and, and Top Dog Underdog. So I go to D.C. and, and I, did, I did three weeks, four weeks of, of rehearsal before I dropped out of the play because the production was just janky. They were on some bullshit. And I was like, no, I'm not going to play myself. So I just dropped out of the production. I was like, no, I'm not doing this. Mm-hmm. Um, but I did four weeks of the work. Suzanne Lonely Parks, again, leaving this play... You know, I'm looking at her play, I'm looking at my play, I'm like, ah, ah, I need work. So mm-hmm. I came back, and and I, as soon as I was done at D.C., I came back and, and got it to Labs to Slaughter. And I remember handing it, when I was done, the rewrite to, to my lady, and she was like, he's not a ghost anymore, what are you, what are you doing? That was so dope, how are you going to I was like, nah, nah, I'm not feeling it, I'm not feeling it. Got to be brave enough to kind of make the changes that are going to help your piece resonate with 
expression of, of my feelings, my thoughts, my emotions. Uh, the story that I really wanted to tell didn't have a ghost in it. Yeah. You know what I mean? And, and I had to kind of come to grips with that. Um, just did it, pulled the trigger. What do you desire to do next, if it's not uh, in terms of the play or even after the play? Are you writing anything else? Or are you yeah, no, I have another play ready to go. I mean, this play, Lambs to Slaughter, is at NEC. Uh, Karen Brown has committed to produce this play uh, June, I believe, of 2021. <clears throat> Grant's already written. It's good to go. Um, I've already got somebody for music. Church that's already signed on, like we're ready to rock and roll. But I already have another play on Cup uh that's done that I'm very proud of. And uh, some people are looking at it right now. You know, that's that's kind of like the movement. I've got screenplays done. I'm writing. Um, I love acting. I'm going to continue to act, but I need to. all my guests this um, on the show when you think of the word creative who's the first person that comes to mind for you and why August Wilson love that it's the first time somebody said that I think um, yeah there's a, there's a Broadway theater named after him um, that that is a white money arena to have a Broadway theater named after me
where we can say what we want. It's where we can tell our story honestly. And 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 there are many black people in, in America that don't know what that means to them or to us. I mean, that's an interesting question to ask. What what does black mean to you? I mean, if you ask that, I'm really curious what my answer would be, what the answer of people would be. I think, just off the top of my head, I think that's a question we need to start asking each other regularly. Um, As we check in from a place of love and, and, and care. But the work that he did for us helps answer that question. If you have any questions, I have, uh, I did Chip of the Ocean at Seattle Rep years ago. And it changed, it changed my life. And like, it Who'd changed you play? my whole outlook as, as, as a creative person, a black creative person. Um, it has that power. We have that power in the telling of our stories. I lost my father to the gun violence. I have one of my best wow. friends lost his brother to gun violence. Um, it's it's real. It's it's real. So it's um yeah. Absolutely. Um, where where can people follow this this play? That's it's going to be at NEC. Obviously, we don't know because of yeah, COVID. We're, we're going to start ramping up soon with NEC, but I mean, because of this whole COVID thing, everything's up in the air right now. Mm-hmm. Um, but we're going to Schedules, and even with that, I'm working on studio pictures. Marketing comes out, and when it comes out, I'm not worried about it. I'm doing my work anyway. I'm just working, you know. 
things are happening, I believe in organic ascension. I'm not going to rush and I'm not going to push. Um, I will push back, mm -hmm. but I'm not going to push. I'm healthy. I feel good. Um, I'm confident in, in, in what I've created. I know it will find a home and a place uh, to be seen, to be heard in time. I mean, even I could not have predicted the career I've had. It doesn't come from, from any sort of want or desire to be famous or, or to be. I, I, just, I just am. And I always have been. You know, I've, always, I've always trusted that what's for me will be there for me when it's the right time. So I haven't really been too pressed about any of this. I'm just continuing to create. Love it. Lil Kane, thanks for having me on, man.